Hello, listeners, and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. I'm going to apologize right at the beginning today for having a voice that sounds a bit like a croaky bullfrog. I'm basically on day 10 of a cold that I thought would have been four or five days, and I'm now remembering why I like the fact I only get sick about every five years. So I apologize as I sound worse as the episode goes on. Today, we are very lucky to have a guest where I don't even know where to begin to describe all the things I'd like to talk with him about. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Gregory P. Smith. He's written two amazing books, Out of the Forest and Better Than Happiness. Gregory has had the most amazing life, and I don't really think that's the right word. Uh, Extreme trauma and addiction as a young person made the decision to walk out of the world most of us live in into a forest for nearly nine years, walked out of the forest nearly dead and realized everything has to change. And now in 2023, you know, he's a PhD, he's got a family, he's helping lots of other people, he's become an expert on so many of the things he's been through, he's shone a light on so many big things about the nature of the mistreatment of people. And I really don't know where the interview is going to go. Other than I think you'll find it interesting and important, and I really, even before you listen, recommend that you read both books. So I hope you enjoy our conversation today, and thank you as ever for listening. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961-2020 to Welcome to Blind Insights, a podcast we call A Haphazard Guide to Living, hosted by philosophy master David Olney and myself, a philosophy student, Tim Whiffen. Hello, listeners. You've just heard my intro. I hopefully don't sound too much more like a, you know, a, a croaky bullfrog. Dr. Gregory P. Smith, welcome to Blind Insights. Thank you for inviting me, David. It's a, it's a privilege and an honour to be able to um, share some insights in with your audience. Thank you very much. I, Because I've been sick for a week, it gave me time to listen to Out of the Forest. And, you know, having read Better Than Happiness already, one part of it just resonated with me so much. And not from my personal experience, but that it gave me a profound sense of the world should be more just than this. There's too much injustice. And it's where in the book you are describing arriving at the orphanage, your mum dropping you at the orphanage. And as you describe the orphanage over the next couple of chapters, and you make a point at some point in there about how can adults who believe in God treat kids this way? How can society let this happen in? And I got caught with such a visceral sense of injustice that how can any civilized society be so asleep or uncaring or not willing to look in dark places that it lets this happen to children? Um, Is my response fairly typical of what people have told you when they read that part of the book? Um. The similarities in there, David, but I think you you um, you read quite a, a little bit more into it, and rightfully so. Um, one of the things that I did before I wrote the book was to go and visit 
in a in a um, um, nursing home. One, one of the sisters of mercy that was really uh, at the forefront of uh, dishing out the punishment, and her philosophy was that. You know, we received a belting every morning after we got out of bed um, and before we had breakfast um, because it was inevitable that we were going to sin through the day. Wow. So, so it was a preemptive punishment. Um, but when I went to visit her, um, and she was basically in palliative care when I visited her, and uh, she was, I think, about 98 years old, and I'm looking at her there she was just this tiny little figure you know squeezed up into a fetal position and um, and i you know i i, I said uh, hello sister and she opened one eye and she looked at me and i said do you remember who i am and she said oh yes you are one of those naughty boys yeah and that was her reality. Yeah. So, and that's what's so confronting when you write that bit in the book, that she yeah. is still in the same reality of seeing a 10-year-old who has no say in his life as you're yeah. a naughty boy. Yeah. So she was right. Yeah. She's positioning herself as the, you know, the person that has God on her side and she's right. And she rationalizes that. Um, yeah, that punishment as something that, that must be done. So uh, one, another one of the philosophies of the Sisters of Mercy was that you know, the spirit of the child must be broken that the spirit of the Lord may enter. Wow. Um, so there was a lot of emphasis on breaking the spirit of the child. So really, everything was a system of control. The sooner that's, you could get extreme obedience, the happier they were. That's that's exactly right. Yes, and yeah. um, you know, I was ten years old when I went into the orphanage, so I had already established um, certain socially con constructed norms. You know, I had my own ideas about what was going on, even though um, the environment in which I was raised was volatile, violent, um, and basically dangerous um, for young people. But I still I still had the security of my siblings, yeah. confidence of my siblings. So, you know, that relationship with my siblings was my whole world. Mm. Um, and then when, I, when my mother gave me to the orphanage, uh, that was shattered as well. So I had nothing else. I had no purpose, I had no reason to conform to anybody's ideas, wishes, or philosophies. Yeah, and you make the point in that part of the book that you know you become friends with the young indigenous boy in the next bed beside you, Gussie, yeah. and at the time you wrote the book, you've never been able to find him. Does that remain the same, that you've never been able to find out what happened to him? Uh, I've never been able to find out what happened to him. I've had offers from... Um, you know, um, missing persons specialists, mm -hmm. uh, both, in, you know, in the official force um, and private sector. 
Um, they've tried to locate him, but without success. One of the things that the orphanage administration did really well was to um, avoid documenting um, or disposing mm. of information. Mm. Yeah, if you don't write anything, it can't ever be found. So it's like when you are in juvenile detention and they write how well you're doing at being trained and that you're going to be an excellent <laughs> citizen. Well, if they looked at where you were going to be 50 years later, they were absolutely correct. You were going to be awesome. <laughs> they were right, yeah. But, um, but I don't think they were that prescient. Uh, they certainly were not. Um, look, what they did, what, I mean, in terms of the punitive system, what they did really well was teach me how to march, um, teach me to be obsessive-compulsive about the way I folded my clothes and... Mm. Um, yeah, uh, cleanliness. I mean, I, I must give a lot of acknowledgement to their, um, because I spent every day, I spent hours in the evolution blocks on my hands and knees scrubbing floors. Mm. Yeah, cleaning grease traps. Uh, when I wasn't cleaning grease traps, I'd be in solitary confinement or starting fights. So, um, yeah, when I sort of reflect back on that, I thought, gee, uh, yeah, I probably could have done better things with my time. Yeah, but you didn't at that point know what a better thing would be. Exactly. There was no better option in front of you. The other thing that really struck me about the orphanage phase of Out of the Forest and, you know, from teaching international security, I always used to teach sections on um, Colonel Grossman's work, you know, on killing. And he mm -hmm. makes the argument, you know, killing is very hard. You need a you know, significant amount of moral or cultural or social distance and your physical and mechanical distance help too. But something that Grossman never really talks about because it's a bit too uncomfortable is actually killing's hard, but learning to be callously violent to other humans is actually far too simple. It is, yes. And uh, I think, yeah, on that point, I think it's a, there's actually a default position in our psychology uh, that if we're not exercising our, our morality, our spirituality, you know, our social conscience, then we can very easily uh, default into a position of it's almost primal. It's a survival primal. Yeah. Um, uh, violence was so normal for so long. Yeah. That if we don't have so you know the other thing from coming out of security studies is you know when the literature started emerging because of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars on moral injury that really a lot of people who went to Afghanistan and Iraq it you know, post-traumatic stress was the less significant issue it was the moral injury of what they'd been seen and what they'd been asked to do and once your compass is tarnished untarnishing it is very difficult Absolutely. and that that's what makes inappropriate violence so easy and you know here you are with the experience of you know your dad and extreme alcohol coming home and you're going well do i get between him and hitting someone else yeah i'm going to because you'd taken on the defender role you had tried at any and all cost to keep an untarnished moral compass in relation to your sisters and in doing so you know took on even more you know violence burden yeah and and then that was shattered when one of my parents surrendered us to the orphanage and then we were separated. Yeah. Yeah, so all that investment 
in in that protection, in that moral stance, yeah, was dissolved in that one moment. And and there's always there's always a need to fill a, a void with something else. Yes. You know, so so all this anger just flooded in and saturated every void in in my um in my being. Mm. So you know, I became resentful, angry, dis, you know, uh, disrespectful, disobedient, and it was like um, you know, um, the ultimate rebel, really. Mm. Yeah, and it's such an interesting thing the way you write about it throughout the book is that, yeah, it was just this anger where, like, you came up with your rule. One pub was the pub where you wouldn't pick fights because you had to have one place where you could just quietly drink and dull pain that That's wasn't correct. about kicking off. Because, again, the great thing about anger is once you unleash it, pain goes away for a while because anger burns even hotter. That's right. Yeah. And there's actually a lot in that, just in that little um, spell there, David, mm. because um, humans always need a safe space. Mm. You know, somewhere that you can retreat to and just be. And I had that, I had that pub. Um, and that was the only real safe space for me. Uh, Having said that, there were rumours in that pub that I was a dangerous person. Mm, but that might have helped keep it safe. It because did. even if you'd had a punch-up with someone in another pub, they kind of realised this is neutral ground. If we both meet in here, we'll just acknowledge each other, go back to our schooner, and no one needs to lose a tooth. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, a, a very powerful idea. A couple of months ago, I read Mosh Ratson's book, you know, Anger is Your Compass, and you know, Mosh spent some time in the Israeli military, and, you know, it's had to deal with anger and then became a psychotherapist. And that thing of your know, negative emotion, if you can find it a productive outlet of any sort, you're better off than not for finding a productive outlet. But any outlet is better than bottling it up. So yes. you know, that thing of constantly fighting means you're constantly going to get physical endorphins from the fight. You're going to get a little bit of euphoria. Um, you're going to have a current problem to think about rather than an old problem because there's going to be the current aches and pains or the new problem of the local cop looking at you. So it keeps moving you back to a present moment focus. Yes, that's right. I, yeah. I also think there's a um, there's a certain amount of self-empowerment in having um, – in managing that your anger. I yeah. mean, everybody, everybody gets angry, you know, and uh, I mean – it's, you know, I mean, as some of us know, there are. I mean, there's different levels of anger, and I mean, you talk about, you know, um, people with PTSD, um, you know, uh, in ultra or you know, really violent situations. Yeah, um, there's actually one of the one of the things that used to bring me to anger before anything else was fear. So. Fear was my immediate antidote to anger. Uh, sorry, the other way around. Anger was my immediate antidote to fear. So if I felt threatened, you revved up. Absolutely, anger, see, was, anger was the answer. See, that's fascinating because you know, I've I've spoken about it multiple times in the podcast. I was the blind kid who you know I always used the word rage because it's just a seething, burning 
you know, mess of negative emotion. And, you know, to me, it's exactly the same. The minute something was uncomfortable learning to use the cane at age seven, the minute being out in the world at 18, 19, and the world's got a bit weird on a Saturday night. And, you know, classic example of this, walking down Hindley Street about to go play guitar one night here in Adelaide, and some guy decides to grab my guitar case. Yeah, right. Rather than let go of it, I go with him into the traffic. We fall in the traffic, him under the case, me on top of the case. I've let go of my cane. I've got his throat in one hand and I'm punching his face with the other hand. Yeah. And it takes his Absolutely, totally relate to that. Yep. It's cool. Well, mate, you wanted to kick off. And once you give me a dose of fear, fear is intolerable. Because, you yeah. know, it's that wonderful line from, you know, June by Frank Herbert fear is the mind killer. That's right. So and, you learn to bring yeah. up anger in to get the, the the mind back in the game. There's a little. There's another little caveat in there as well. It's, it's when you let the cane go and you grab hold of this guy by the throat, because that's coming into. I don't care who wins, but no, I'm not going to. I'm not going to lose. Yep. No. If Mutually gonna, assured destruction. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, totally get it. Yeah, like again, I'm very glad it never got more out of control than that. That's it was my point. right there's my point. Hmm. If we learn or if we take control and manage that, then it becomes a really self empowerment um, tool. Hmm. Because it, I mean, we have that experience. We, you know, we have that identification. We know what it's like. We know what the outcomes are. One of the, one of the things I became very cognizant of is every time I get angry, I lose. Yeah. Yeah. There was never once that I got angry that I didn't lose something. Mm. Yeah. So, um, turning that around and making that work for me, and I and I, you know, I embed that emotion into tenacity. Mm. So if I'm advocating for a purpose or, or a reason, you know, and I'm, I have this, you know, rejection or people don't want to listen to me, especially politicians and all the rest of it, um, you know, I, I take that energy from that emotion and start to feed it into that tenacity and just keep coming back. Mm. Yeah, the way I articulated it and talking to Mosh helped me kind of confirm it a bit more clearly is, you know, anger can go three places. You can drop it on the floor, light a match and burn everyone. I've done can, that. Yep. You can put it in a fuel tank and store it for later. It will explode and burn everyone. I've done that. <laughs> or you can put it in a machine that's directed to a purpose. That's it. Yeah. That's, that's the one. Yep. And and once you've worked that one out, you're like, ah, oh, it's just <laughs> fuel. It's just fuel. Um, and it's good fuel. It's, yeah. It's, it's really good feel. So that's awesome. I like and that. I might, I might borrow that. You are more than welcome to, because I was so happy when I kind of worked it out. And, you know, Mosh kind of said to me jokingly after the recording, he said, I could have just put that on the cover of the book if I knew it before. <laughs> I'm like, dude, second edition, go for it. No problem. Yeah, no, it's pretty good. Um, pretty- and this is, this is sort of the remarkable thing. Like, I, I'm going to just jump around all over the place because, well, that's that's what happens when you talk to interesting people. But that's the fascinating thing. I'm going to jump over the forest for now because it just links so closely to what we just talked to. And that is the moment where you're sitting on the bench in tweed heads. You've been in hospital. You know, you've now got 
a support pension just so there's a little bit of money going you know while you try and work out what to do next and you're sitting on a bench and you're still homeless and your backpack is full of drugs and booze and cigarettes and you go after nine years in the forest i am right back apparently no no further along than i was before i walked in the forest and that to me that feels like the moment in both books where that's when you work out how to fuel the go forward machine like how do you put the emotions the negative emotions in the machine yeah even if you don't know what the machine does yet you know that the negative emotions have to go in the move forward machine yeah yeah look uh i would i would have to acknowledge that that was probably the most powerful moment in my life apart from um being born um because oh look it's 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 a massive moment i mean when i write about it in the books i just touch on it you know i mean it's yeah you just try and a whole book could be a description of that moment is the sense i get uh, absolutely but what absolutely because what it does okay i spent i spent all that time in the forest and um just for the listeners yeah when i went in the forest the mistake i made was i took myself with me um which meant that i took all the pain all the baggage of the past my attitudes everything else came in there with me um there are a couple of good things that went in there with me as well, and that was my uh, ability to think. And although I didn't realise it at the time, my ability to process and analyse. Mm. You know, so during that time in the forest, I, I had plenty of time to think. I had plenty of time to process my thoughts and analyse my thoughts. And, of course, inevitably my thoughts turned to my anger my pain you know what caused the pain you know these all these moments in my life that were um uh pivotal in terms of um damage done um and so you know looking at each one of those and and dissecting it analyzing it and taking the lessons from it in the forest i wasn't capable of doing anything about it but when i sat on that park bench and I had that epiphany, all that information was available to me, all that analysis, all that process was suddenly available to me in that moment. And I knew, I knew that I could change, but I also knew that my history was in, in, in making decisions and sticking to decisions was very weak mm. you know I, I didn't have a really good his, uh, history or record of making good decisions and sticking to them so i had to start very basic um you know sitting there on the park bench realizing that everything i owned was there on that park bench with me at that at that moment and when I say everything I owned, I mean my body, my mind, my spirit, everything, including what was on that in in the bag. 
there were two um there were two other things that were with me on that day that I owned, but I never really um claimed them. And that was my name. And I realized that the importance of my my name in that moment. That was what that was a name that my parents considered for a long time before they gave me. They spent a lot of time thinking about giving me a name. So suddenly it became important for me to own my name. And then I once I once I claimed my name, I realized, you know something? If people talk about me in a thousand years, that's what they're going to use. They're going to use my name. Hmm. So really it's something that I own. The other thing that I realized I own was my word to myself, my word as a human being. You know, and I'd trashed that. I'd spent all my life trashing my word. So I needed to reclaim my word to myself. So if I said I was going to do something, I needed to be able to carry it through. Mm. And the ultimate way to learn to do that was to first do it for things about yourself, because that would give you that chance to practice and go, well, for a month, I've held that, you know, yeah. I'm going to do X. So when I tell the people I'm going to do X, I'll do it because I now know I'm solid for at least a month. And if yes. I'm solid for a month, I'll be solid for longer. Yeah. Yes. And another part of that is to see myself differently. Yeah. As someone who can give their word and keep it, which is That's a way right. to start rebuilding your moral compass. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and that vision, that reconstructed vision of, myself was really important in being able to do that yeah yeah you know like my version of a day like yours on the bench is tiny in comparison i just call it brain snap day yeah so you know august 28 1997 was the day i realized i can't make peace with being blind so stop trying yeah yeah, yeah. just just Put the fuel in the machine. Yeah. Don't yeah. try and stop the flow of the fuel. The rage flows. The rage is always going to flow. That's okay. It is legitimately to be profoundly pissed off about being blind. But Absolutely. don't take it out on people. Put it in the machine. And yeah. it's such a relief when you get the realization that, all right, if you can't stop something negative, you can turn it into something positive. And that's sort of why for me, when I fell into teaching at university, so my original plan, the start of my PhD, had literally just been to get the scholarship money so I could go off to London and study violin with a good Russian teacher. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> and then unfortunately, the combination of the cane and the, the violin bow ended up being too much for my wrist and I had to give up violin and I'm like, no. ah, crap. <laughs> oh, I'll give this teaching thing a go. Yeah. Ooh, empowering <laughs> other people is nearly as good as playing Paganini. This is awesome. It's, it's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. Really, yeah, one of the great – I love it when a student comes, you know, after they've graduated, they, you, you can see them, they're successful, and they come yeah. back. Yeah, you know, they just start to point out those little highlights of their of their learning moments. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's very special. Yeah, I, I got to catch up with one of my last students uh, last Monday, just before I got the cold, she was back from Canberra, graduating from her master's, now prime minister and cabinet. And I'm like, well, that's not a bad legacy of nearly 20 years. 
Now I've That's moved on cool. to strategic communications, but now every week I help someone with their company or I help someone with their idea so people understand them. I get more, you know, I get real-time feedback now in a different role, but it's still that thing of seeing that when you put some effort in, someone's day gets bigger and better than it was. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the power of meaning. If you can't find your own, help someone have more of theirs and you'll find your own eventually. In that moment, yeah, and that's something I learned very quickly is, you know, if I want to feel good, do good things. Mm. Helping another person is a good thing. Yeah. So I worked out very quickly, and I'm, I can be quite selfish at times. Well, um, you know, I like feeling good. Mm. So I can help people a lot. Yep. Yeah, and and that works that works out well. I mean, um. Well, they gave me a medal for that um, just recently. So uh, that made me feel good. Which will reinforce the behaviours. So, again, it's a great virtuous cycle. Well, it is. And look, it's, um, it's just so good. It's just so good to know that, you know, one more person um, doesn't have to drag their feet around every day with it, their lip on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. And... In a sense, you know, me teaching at Adelaide University, it was an environment where a proportion of the kids I was teaching literally just needed to get through their degree to move into the career that had been planned for them for a decade, and life was going to be pretty smooth. <laughs> but then there was the other half of the class where they were the first person in their family to ever make it to a uni. They'd made it to a group of eight, which was all pretty daunting. They had no clue what it was meant to be like or what they were meant to do with it. And if you could make their transition, you know, a bit more effective, um, yeah, it just has a huge impact. So that's then a strange thing, I'm, I'm guessing, for you being in the forest for nine years. You get a chance to do all this processing time. And, you know, there's the moment where you kill the big python that's asleep on top of you one night that scares the living hell out of you yeah. and then eat the python and then have some really terrible dreams and go, I'm not going to eat critters in the forest anymore. Um, yeah. So was that the beginning of kind of recognizing this thing of, hang on, when I decide not to do any harm, I feel better about myself? That that must have been an amazingly important moment as well, I'm guessing. It was. Absolutely it was. Um, again, it's about, you know, I, I guess when I, um, learning the connections of self and introducing self to self, understanding self. And, uh, you know, we're very complex uh, beings. Um, and to simplify it, you know, to separate the or to understand the spiritual health and the well-being, the uh, emotional, mental health and well-being and the, and the spiritual health and well-being, and then being able to learn the lessons that, you know, um, thousands of years ago, we would have been in touch with just from our, our cultural upbringings, but that they've been lost over, you know, generations of civilized society. Mm. Um, you know, um, but to, to reconnect self to those ancient um, processes uh, is an incredible, empowering experience. And it's... Yeah, it's and that's 
Yeah, I mean, and this is what inspired the second book too, because what what I realised was um, you can be, you know, you, you can be quite sad or depressed, but still be contented with where you're at. Yeah, but it's to, to be contented with where you're at, everything has to be in place. Mm. Your contentment is about little things in the moment but also seeing in the long picture that that's a pretty okay moment. Yeah. Whereas happiness is about yeah. plotting and planning and will it all come off? Well, why not just be contented and see? Yeah. 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 I mean, you can be happy in contentment. Mm. You can be bad in contentment. Mm. Uh, you can be grieving in contentment. Mm. But you get the choice. And yeah. and that's, you know, a, you know, interesting book I think I read last year or listened to last year, Antonio Damasio's, uh, book on was it feel the feeling and thinking mind current what it's called now but really making the argument that you know evolution of the the brain started with emotions first because emotions drive creatures really effectively you yes. don't need to reason something you just need to act and yes. that we are in the difficult position of having a feeling mind that doesn't care less about civilization and yes. a thinking mind that has been distorted out of shape by civilization so if anything the gap between the two halves of our brain is bigger than it's ever been because of the nature of the kind of society we have and that we're not connected to the physical world. We're not connected to other living things. And we don't have a way to reground ourselves in if feeling mind feels contented, that our stomach's just full enough, that we're surrounded by some other beings we like and understand, that we're sitting under a big tree on lawn with a breeze. Like to feeling mind, that is a 99.9 out of 100 day. Yeah, that's a pretty good day, especially if there's a little bit of water in the, you know, and the yep. breeze is just kicking the water up. Yep. Yeah, totally relate. Yeah. Yep. But if thinking mind gets in the game and goes, oh, have I been successful enough? Did that person slight me? What do I do next? <laughs> but yeah, you touch on a really good point there because thinking is my way of interfering with my life. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well said. Yeah, um, the less I think, you know, about the things I don't have to think about, mm -hmm. the better they uh, go. The, well, the less conflict I have in my life, and the you know, the more the, mm. happy, the happier, more contented I am. Mm. But as soon as I start thinking, you know, things like, oh, wouldn't it be good if, you know, mm. I, you know, I want to have that. Well, I'm gone. Yep. Because I mean, think, thinking mind will now drag you away for everything that's good in the present to all these things that may or may not be possible that are contingent on other people and other resources. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, so, you know, I understand today, yeah, uh, know what I get paid to think about mm. and only think about the things I get paid for. Mm -mm. And a couple so of things for fun for set amounts of time. Uh, no, I let I let my partner do that. Okay, well, that's a very cunning plan. Well done, you. <laughs> she she does it well. Well, look, she looks after me so well. I can't complain, you know. <laughs> so, but... Yeah, with too many people have known me as the deep thinker for for so long that if I just sit still and quiet and look mellow and happy, someone will inevitably come up and go, "What are you thinking about?" And when, yeah, I, okay. when I turn around and go, "Absolutely nothing," and it's awesome. None of them I believe me. Yeah, yeah. Look, I have a yeah, I have a twelve-month-old son, and we're just sort of in those early days of you know, I'll take him outside as we live on a little bit of property, and we've got the mm -hmm. tooks down the back, and the bird. Yeah, you know, we've got 
um, you know, trees for birds and, you know, the honey eaters and that big birds come in. We just go out and I've got a little seat for him and I've got a little seat and a big seat for me and we just sit there and we listen. Mm. We listen to the planet turn. Yep. And uh, if you can help him keep that stillness. Yeah. So he can always return to stillness. Like I think I had a version from my Hungarian grandmother's farm. That was always my place where, you know, little blind David could be whatever little blind David was. And more importantly, yeah. I could be David first and blind second. Yeah, all well, I think that I think you are. I think mm, precisely. Yeah, yeah, once once and that's a part of that philosophical understanding of me. Mm. Of myself, you know, it's like understanding that I am first, well, I am me first and everything else is. Yep, you've got to be Gregory P. Smith first. Absolutely. And, and your moral compass has to be able to point at your name and go, yeah. That's who I am. Yep, and I'm cool with it. And if yeah. I want to do some modifications, well, I'll do them in a habitual step-by-step -step way that sticks. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, but don't think about it too much. No, decide it's a good idea, work out what the habit looks like. Yeah. Yeah. Now there's something that I I used to be really bad at, but I'm really really, really adverse in now, and that's making a decision. And that's really important for a healthy life. Just being able to make that decision. But in a few also, seconds. Yeah, but also understanding that you know, you're intelligent enough that if new information comes, you can change that decision. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, one of the things I used to love teaching people in complex problem solving was, you know, Bayes' theorem. And he was a 18th century religious mathematician. And it's really the basis of Google. And that is when you've got a little bit of information, make a probability about your hypothesis. Yeah. Get moving when you get more data, update it. <laughs> we do it, we do it anyway. Yep. Yep. So make a decision now on the basis that the minute you got more data, you will add that in and you'll make a new decision. And yeah. then as long as you can explain to someone, well, I did this before because I had this much data. Now I've got this new data. It gives me greater insight. So I'm doing something better. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, to put that into the business world, you know, a business that doesn't update its uh, its philosophy or its stock or its mm. methods on regular occasions, have, you know, have that at inventory, whether it's um, you know um, on their on their processes or their mm. stock or whatever, yeah, you know, they don't last very long. No, and it's one of the fascinating things for me now, working in an American company and an Australian company. Australian companies are very slow and careful to mm. change ideas. American companies are in a hurry to grab the new idea even before it's been tested. So again, like like always, getting the pendulum in the middle is always the hardest thing. But different groups of people have different proclivities towards hanging on too tight or moving forward too too quickly and without quite enough care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, there are those that don't want to move on at all. No, and they're the ones we normally sit on while we go fishing. It's a great <laughs> rock. My esky lid fits on that so well. I love it. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Nothing wrong with putting an esky lid on people that don't move. Oh, at least, at least yeah. they've become useful all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, there's a use for everything, isn't it? You just gotta find it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you've you've made the decision to leave the backpack behind and you yeah. then start taking step after step after step. Yeah, you, know, you describe that first day of going to TAFE to learn how 
you know, you hope what to do with a computer. But of course, the course ends up being about what a computer is, <laughs> which you know, having been through nine years of Mr. Lizard, I'm not going to eat you. Yeah. Like that must have been the weirdest couple of months to go, I'm moving forward, but I'm really not sure where I'm going at this point. Now, good point. Weird is relative. That's true. Yeah. Um, uh, other people look at me and say, you have a really weird life. My life's normal. It always, yeah. had been, it always has been normal. Yep. And there's been nothing out of the ordinary in my life. So... Uh, every day is a new adventure still today. Mm. Yeah. Um, but in that moment, in that particular moment, yeah, I there were there was lots of learning opportunities around that moment. And I think one of the one of the things that I sort of flirted with at that in that course was don't have your expectations too high. Mm. You know, it's okay to have expectations, but keep them really low. That way, if you meet them and exceed them, it's a really good day. Exactly. You know, so um, because I did have my expectations high during that course. You know, I was going to walk out of that um, that cert one six-week course as a computer whiz. Yeah. You know, I was going to conquer the world uh, with my with my understanding of technology and computer. Yep. And, but when I came out the other end at six weeks and they gave me this piece of paper and I still felt that I didn't know anything except what a computer looked like, um, and I could have pulled a computer, well, I did, I pulled a computer apart and had a look inside of it as well, so I even knew what the inside looked like. Mm. But it really didn't give me what I was expecting. No, but it had been a wonderful proof that you could learn to learn Absolutely. in a formal environment. And that ends up being the mega power of it. Absolutely right. Yeah, and even then, I didn't understand what that meant at that time. Mm. But that there was a feel-good around that process, even though there was that very low or that disappointment of, an, of unexpected, uh, sorry, unmet expectations, you know, there was that, yeah, but I finished, mm. and I've got I've got this piece of paper, and they'll let me do the next thing, and who knows what that is, but I'll learn a bit more, and that might be the one. Yeah, well, I want that other piece of paper. Because mm. again, that's, that's the helpful. thing you you can't keep going forward under adversity without some deep sense of self going. I can be something. It has to be in there somewhere. Otherwise, yeah. you don't keep going forward. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, when I was a child, going to school was about escaping trauma. Yeah. Or, or, or experiencing more trauma. Yeah. So school for me wasn't a place to learn. No. So no, was, it was just a quiet time where there was less overt violence. Yeah. So, so there was this massive void within me that this very dry sponge that was looking for things to absorb. Mm. You know, and once I was introduced to that, that piece of paper felt good. I mm. like that, you know, I like that. I want more of these pieces of paper. Mm. So so I went um, chasing the pieces of paper. And the great thing is that with them 
becomes knowledge and because you develop all the processing skills and the analysis skills, well, guess what? When they stuck more information in front of you, cowabunga, look at all the things you could do with it. You could get bits of paper and create new ideas and explain things better. Even better, David, I was able to find freedom. That's a big thing. That's it's incredible. And you know, um, while I was on the sand dunes studying at um, at TAFE, I found a, um, a feather, a bird feather. It was uh, from the eastern rosella. Mm-hmm. Very, very colourful um, feather. And I was looking at that. It was just sort of on dusk. I'm looking at that, thinking about the bird that lost it flying away. And I thought, it's still free. Even though it's left me this this gift, it can still go. And then I started to think about that as a gift. And I thought about, uh, I start, you know, I put it in my in my book that I was writing in. And it's just that connection in that moment was one of those, you know, those those moments. It's like that, you know, what I'm doing is a freedom exploration. You know, I'm going to find freedom through this education. And this feather represents that freedom. I've still got that feather today. Which is fantastic that you've still got. Yeah, for me, sort of my equivalent freedom is playing the guitar. Being yeah. blind doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, Even yeah. being David doesn't matter very much. David does day-to-day things in the world, but when David's sitting with a guitar, that's putting notes together in a way that is pleasing or interesting or makes me wonder why don't I play that. But either way, it's still something I want to do again the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next month, the next year. And anything where you get that sense of, you know, what you know, the psychologists talk about is flow. You know, getting flow, just being in something so interesting that you don't have to be in all the things that normally feel like you're carrying a bag of concrete. It's just so rewarding. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's amazing. Because well, my partner's very musical. Uh, she's actually, a, you know, one of the things that attracted me to her is she's the singer in a rock and roll band. I don't like she's, uh... And for the guy who doesn't like music that much, that must have been a bit confronting. But while, while it was that was that was just sort of groupy imagey stuff, you know. I mean, uh, she's an amazing, intelligent woman. She's, mm. a, she's a, you know, she's a feature writer. She's a musician. Mm. She's an artist. She's, you know, she manages multi-million-dollar businesses. I thought, yeah, okay, she might have a chance in my life. But um, and and she holds me to account, you know, and that's mm. that's really good. That's really good. But she will sit there and just play the guitar, and that's mm. her. That's her freedom. Yeah, exactly. Similar to what I'm describing, you can just get yeah. lost in the joy of yeah. this timber resonating because of where you put your fingers. Yeah. yeah. And the and the surprising thing about that, because she'll just sit there and maybe, I mean, we don't watch TV or very rarely watch TV. She'll just, you know, grab the ukulele or the guitar or whatever. Um, she just bought a trumpet. That could be a bit scary. That could be a little bit different. Yeah, it could be. But she'll grab the guitar and she'll just sit there and off she goes and yeah, and some of the song oh she'll play anything from sort of nineteen twenty through to now. Mm. Um, but all of a sudden I don't hate music as much as I used to. Because you've got someone else's perspective to learn yes. to appreciate it through. Yeah. Yes. But this she provides me with a doorway. Mm. 
uh, into a new understanding of what music actually is. Mm. Now, because I'd been taught that music was evil. Again, very much a thing from the nuns and the orphanage. For them, it was a frivolous waste of time. Yeah, exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so I spent so many, you know, so much of my life not afraid of music because it was a sin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then uh, to be reintroduced to music in this way, um, it's very. It's it. Well, again, it's a spiritual law. It's a very beautiful thing. Yeah, it's a way to let the feeling mind just roam free. Because thinking mind can think about the music if you're making it. Like, how am I going to use my hands? What am I doing next? Mm -hmm. But not in any way that disrupts feeling mind from being in control and yeah. getting the music out the way you want to get it out. Yeah, it puts She's the the brain in the right balance, like we were talking about before. You know, feeling yeah. mind, you get on with it, thinking mind. You have a bit of a nap over there on the side. Yeah, well, you know, I can just potter around listening to the music thinking, wow, that's beautiful. Mm. Which, again, is a, a, this is the other thing, but your story just shows so beautifully. Like, you know, we used to believe that neuroplasticity was really very low and that as adults we couldn't keep building new you know, brain cells and rewiring our brain. And of course, we now know, all right, the rate slows a little bit, but we can have new brain cells and be rewiring our brain our whole life. Uh, and it's the most uh, remarkable thing once you realize you're in control of that. Yeah. Um, well, I astound myself with my ability to learn still. Mm. You know, I mean, for somebody that was told that I was stupid most of their life, um, and I sit down and, and sort of crunch whatever, you know, and whatever analysis I have to process, um, develop new research projects, you know, uh, yeah. working with new, uh, new organizations. You know, it's just, it's incredible. Yeah. That your brain, if you ask your brain to do it and give it what it needs, like you know, I, I got to work at the university for a while and still do podcasts with Dr. Marchie Hennenberg, who's the most amazing medical anthropologist. And Marchie's like 74 and brain just functions on a level of thinking through medical and scientific things that I don't even pretend to keep up with. <laughs> but it still seems to be getting faster. Yeah. And I sort of commented to Marchie the other week, oh, Marchie, I think your brain's getting faster. And he just started <laughs> laughing hysterically and going, yours is the one that's getting faster. I feel slow compared to you now. I'm like, yeah, ha, ha. Like, all right, we'll just call this a mutual, you know, like we appreciate each other first and be glad that brains look after us. Yeah. And let yeah, us yeah. do these amazing things. Yeah. And, yeah, interesting the way you described that as well because – um, I can interfere with my brain. Yep. So, so yeah, I need to let it do its do what, thing. Do its yep. thing. Yeah. So, I would imagine you know, the fact that you can speak about homelessness now from so much experience and so much deep research as an academic, you can talk about addiction from the personal and the professional perspective of understanding it. Yeah. <sighs> How are you finding the process of then going to talk to politicians and people who control the money and communicating to people who don't have personal or academic understanding 
are you finding that that's a whole other area of learning you've had to undertake that you never would have expected? You know, the how to communicate effectively with very, very different people. That's an that's art in itself. It is an art in itself. It's a skill. It's a skill set that I've had to learn. Um, politicians don't have a lot of time, so if you yeah. can't if you can't engage the impact and engage them within the first um, sixty seconds, it's over. Yeah, it's over. we get it. We get it. So yeah, yeah. One has to grab them in that sixty seconds. Then you've got about another uh, 45 seconds to unpack their interests. So they're actually going to listen to what you've got. Yep. And then you've got a couple of minutes to sort of del for the key delivery. To tell them what they need. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, 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 the best, what I've learned, the best theories around approaching a politician is ec economic rationalism. Yep. Yep. It's it's the common ground that all Australian politicians have. So exactly. don't don't worry about ideology because you don't know what's in vogue this week. That's right. But if you keep it down to economic rationalism, you're speaking the language that they've all absorbed. That unfortunately is also the thing limiting the progress Australia can make to be an amazing place. But that's a whole other problem for a whole other podcast. <laughs> it's actually what I'm interested in as well because the yeah, there's, there's a lot of anchors in the sand clinging on to that um, that attitude. I was only in a conversation with some friends yesterday where a friend of mine with his podcast was like, I want to do a podcast on progressive economics, but one that people will actually listen to. And yeah. I, just la I just laughed hysterically <laughs> having you know, interviewed sort of 20 of the top progressive economists in the world in 2020. And, you know, we got good numbers because our listeners listened, but it didn't pick up new people. And what I said to him yesterday, I said, the problem is, man, that, you know, neoliberalism has now been taught for 50 years. The problem is it's not a big idea anymore. It's the banality of evil. That's We're right. kind of in Hannah Arendt territory where mean, small ideas have been normalized to such an extent that we're going to have to think up a new way to interact with the people who basically onboarded them along with their Vegemite on white toast. Yeah, and look, for me, the saddest part of neoliberalism is the individualization of community. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because, and that talks into stuff we were talking about earlier mm. about, yeah, um, about anger, about pain, about loneliness. Mm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed, or you probably wouldn't, but I send my emails out, and at the bottom, at the bottom of my signature, you know, I, I ask that critical question, you know, um, which is more expensive, ignorance or education? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd seen it, I think, on your first signature when you wrote back to me, but having had the cold, brain's just gone, that was cool, and now I'm just going to focus on breathing. <laughs> well, the other part of that is, um, you know, d disease or health. Yeah. Yeah, there should be free education, free health. Yeah, because the, the more, if people are well and informed, guess what? They do amazing things. They do, and you have healthy communities. Yeah, and like you know, some of the literature on universal basic income, like the fact that Canadians ran an incredible yeah. trial in a province, that Nixon was looking at UBI in America in the yeah. 70s, 
this is not new and we've pretty much worked out the majority of people will use it to add value to the world. That's right. The yeah, few well, who don't, we better to just carry that. It's okay. But it's those few that neoliberals neoliberals will fixate on. Yeah. 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 And they use the you know that that minority as a rationalization as to why the majority should suffer to penalise the minority. Yeah. And yet here we are having just recorded a podcast of proving what a difference it can make when a person like you could get access to affordable education and healthcare. Absolutely. And what a difference it's made through the podcast, you know, all my listeners, are, what difference has it made that I could get a, a, a you know, a free education like and become it. a lecturer? Like we have given back to the community as much as we possibly can because we've realized it's the best way to be happy in ourselves. Well, sorry, I'll yep. take that. We're to be contented in ourselves and quite often happy by accident. <laughs> On my 50th birthday, the very day, my 50th birthday, uh, I was summoned into Centrelink to, for a reassessment of my disability support pension. And by this time, I was, I was into my first year of my undergrad. In fact, I, I just I was six months into my second year. I was summoned in, and I was faced with this Commonwealth doctor. You know, and the Commonwealth doctor looks at me and um, he said, "Well, look, you shouldn't be on a disability support pension. You should be on OSTudy. study." And I said, "Yeah, fair enough." I said, uh, "If I was on OSTudy, study, which is a lot less than the disability pension." Uh, the chances are that I'd have to drop out and probably go on to unemployment anyway. I said, yep. and there's no reason why I couldn't get a job. You know, I could get a job as a bricklayer um, pretty easy. But the difference between doing what I'm doing now, getting an education whereby I can probably work into my 70s and even 80s, mm. or I can drop out now, you know, um, get a job as a bricklayer, and I could probably work until maybe I'm sixty. Hmm. You know, I um, I so I just feel that you know I'm better off finishing my education with a, you know with the support of the disability allowance, hmm. um, so that I can make a larger contribution to society at the end. Hmm. He looked at me, he shook his head, signed the papers, he said, "Get out." Yep. I stopped receiving that disability support pension one year after I received my undergrad. And the one great, of the great thing is it got you through that phase to be yeah. on the path to where you are now, exactly what government should facilitate. It served its purpose the way it should yeah. have. Yep. And, you know, I've paid my hex debt. I've paid everything back. You know, um, and look, there's, there's lots of people just want to do that. I speak to homeless people. All they want to do is get a job so they can get a home, so they can make yep. a contribution yep. to the people that they see hurt. Yeah, the collectivity. We don't have to understand the collectivity as all of us, but we all want to contribute to at least the group of people immediately around us or a group yeah. we're particularly fond of. And anything that takes that ability away doesn't just diminish us individually. It diminishes all of us. That's correct. Yeah, well, well said, David. Well said. Um, I know that 
you know, uh, I teach a lot of um, council students because I do core units. Mm-hmm. And, uh, politics, is Australian politics is one of the core units and that I teach. And um, a, a lot of the counselling courses, social welfare courses, have to do the introductory political unit. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'll ask a student, why did you choose to do that, that coursework? And they say, often they'll say, so I can help other people. So they don't have to experience what I experienced. Yep. Yeah. So it's um, sadly a lot of them have still got a lot of work to do on themselves before they could get to that point. Mm. But their their heart, their spirit, their mind are in the right place. Yeah, and it is about if I improve my life, I'll also be able to improve other people's lives, which is the best recipe for making gains stick. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's basic humanity. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's how we learn to be a society, sitting around, you know, the, the campfire after a day's hunting and gathering and chasing dinosaurs or whatever, you know, and, you know, caring enough about the people that I was sitting with to say, well, no, you don't go down that, don't yeah. they, don't go down that trail, there's a tar pit down there, you don't yep. want to fall into it. Yep. You know? Yeah, out of the the practical things of survival become, you know, some of the best things about being human. And, and again, like you said, it was the what it took. It took nine years in a forest to get the skills ready that when you had your epiphany, you had the skills to back it. Yeah. Now, look, I could have shortchanged myself on that. But you yeah, won't know. Well, I could have... Um... I could have um, not listened to the aliens and stayed in the forest and died. That would have been bad. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I mean, I lost. I lost the bet. I had to. You know, I had to. Look, it's it's all simple things. It is really the simple things. Yeah, I'm so grateful that not only did you do it all, but that you wrote about it so articulately because it's so rare to have people work out and explain big ideas from first principles. Like in the Western canon, we've got so much amazing thinking, but written by people that most people will not be able to access the ideas easily because they're predominantly expressed in abstract ways, whereas the wonderful thing with both of your books is they stay grounded in the consequences of difficult physical experience, in the emotional rawness that comes from life and well i want to move forward and how do i do it let's build a first principle and stick to it i i'm going to say thank you for that i I will i will take that (laughs) i'm glad you're comfortable with it oh well it's it's one of the big lessons of life isn't it Um, learn to take compliments i'm meant to be terrible at it (laughs) i'm learning i'm i'm getting better at it yeah because i you know like Probably similar to yourself, you know, I spend so much time teaching theory. Yeah. And, yeah, so just to be able to talk in that real simple, you know, use, just use the basic words that I learned as a child. Yeah. And then sing the songs with those words. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. for Why Forever I'll Love sort of Camus novels. Yeah, uh, and, and all well because huge ideas with yeah. words that we all have, yeah, yeah best yeah. possible combination. Yeah, 
Yeah, awesome stuff. Yeah, just yeah. I think that's what made the Beatles so big, wasn't it? I would assume so. Same logic. Big, you know, yeah. songs with deep emotional ideas, and yet everyone would have understood the words and been able to follow along with what was happening in the current part of the song. Just keeping it so simple. Yeah. Yep. Well, Dr. Gregory P. Smith, thank you very much for being a guest on Blinds Insights, and I'm automatically and straight away going to say you're more than welcome to come back and you know talk again anytime you've got a new project or new. Th- idea you would like to talk about because it has been an absolute pleasure spending an hour with you. Uh, thank you. That's been awesome. Thank you very much, David. I'm humble. Thank you, Gregory, and thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If the ideas of this episode have inspired you, please consider subscribing and sharing with your friends. Do them a favour so we can make a better informed and connected world. Thank you to Solstice Podcasting for use of their studio. If you're interested in making your own podcast, find out more at solsticepodcasting.com.au.